Greetings, and welcome to Ashram's podcast series. Today, Constance and Delicato, a partner at Wood Smith Nenning and Berman LLC, and Lee McMullen, Senior Risk Management and Patient Safety at the Cooperative of American Physicians, present 18 Fingers Pointing, a dangerous story of throw them under the bus. Hey Lee, did you hear about the one where an ER doc, radiologist, cardiologist, thoracic surgeon, internist, and a nurse all walked into a bar? Uh, okay, this is beginning to sound like a bad knock-knock joke. Um, yeah, a little bit like that, but uh, okay. How about when they all walked into a courtroom? Uh, okay, now you got my attention. Okay, I'm going to tell you a tale of a true story involving six defendant health care providers, their six lawyers, and their six professional liability claim specialists who fought like cats and dogs while the plaintiff's lawyer sat on the sideline licking his chops. Okay, this already sounds like a recipe for disaster. I can see everyone with their hackles up already. Yeah, and the fur was flying. I'm not even kidding. So it all began when a 42-year-old male was brushing his teeth one morning prior to heading to the office. Now he begins to feel dizzy and short of breath. He also complains of mild chest pain and then collapses to the floor, loss of consciousness in front of his 38-year-old wife. She calls 911, of course. He's taken to the hospital where the ER physician evaluates him gives him a differential diagnosis which included pulmonary embolus, myocardial infarction, and sepsis. The ER physician orders a CT angiogram. It's interpreted off-site by the radiologist. The clinical indication for the study was shortness of breath and possibility of pulmonary embolism. So now the radiologist looks at the study, he rules out pulmonary embolism, and he also rules out deep vein thrombosis. His final impression was advanced pericardial effusion with an unknown fluid collection suggestive of a tamponade requiring an urgent cardiology consult. So the patient is admitted to the hospital for further workup. Now he's in ICU. Okay, so we've got a pericardial tamponade and we've got either fluids of some sort, blood, infectious, whatever. Exactly. But one of the issues with the radiologist was that he could have done a weighted study and he would have been able to determine that it was blood. However, he does see this large collection of fluid he knows it's an urgent situation, and as it turns out, they did call in an infectious disease consultant who ended up ruling out sepsis and endocarditis. Okay, mm so we're probably looking more at blood than any other type of fluid. Right, exactly. So here comes the cardiologist. He reviews the CT. He also agrees with the radiologist's interpretation. An echocardiogram is performed, and it shows a dilated aortic root. The patient is taken to surgery by the thoracic surgeon, and the cardiologist also acts as his assistant. So a subxiphoid pericardial window is performed, partial pericardectomy, and partial sternectomy. The surgeon notes in his operative report that the postoperative diagnosis was pericardial tamponade from a hemipericardium, etiology unclear, and that it did not look arterial to suspect aortic dissection. He specifically states that after evacuation of the pericardium, there was no arterial bleeding or active venous bleeding to suspect any cardiac or aortic dehiscence, either due to dissection or due to trauma. So in other words, he rules out aortic dissection and also states that the bleeding has stopped. Wow, wait a minute. In my experience, leaks don't start then stop. Uh, they usually start up again. So we have a hemipericardium and the source of the leak is not either found or identified. Right. The plot thickens. Let's keep going. So now, We've got the thoracic surgeon and cardiologist 
who were satisfied. They thought that whatever cause of bleeding had stopped, they'd taken care of the problem. The patient was to remain in the hospital for the next few days for observation and recovery. And that was their involvement. Okay, wait a minute. Where's the cause and source of the bleed still? Exactly. But we'll get to that, so just hold on. The patient remains in the hospital for a few days for observation and seems to be doing well. On the morning of his planned discharge, the patient complained to the nurses that he experienced back pain and leg pain that he rated as an 8 over 10. He reported leg numbness, particularly on the right side. Now, per the order of the defendant internist, he was tested for deep vein thrombosis. When that proved negative and his pain had improved, the internist approved of his discharge, as did the cardiologist. What they did not know is that the nurses had begun administering pain medication, which remained on the chart as a standing PRN order. Okay, I smell a premature discharge here. We basically got pain medication masking symptoms and the internist and the cardiologist not appreciating what really is going on. And the plot thickens once again. We flash forward to the moment the patient arrives at home, because you're exactly right, Lee. We'll see. The patient comes home, and the family has a celebratory welcome home party planned. We've got his seven-year-old son, whom we will call Johnny, home waiting with the sitter while mom brings the father home. Johnny has the house decorated with balloons and signs, and dad returns to this happy reunion. Mom had left Johnny with dad during the happy reunion so that she could fill the discharge prescriptions and pick up chicken noodle soup for dad. So imagine this. Johnny had been waiting for his father to come home from the hospital. He has balloons and posters up. He and dad are now alone. Mom just pulls out of the driveway and away from the cul-de-sac, and dad collapses in front of Johnny. The young boy runs out of the house, screaming for his neighbors to help his father. As mom returns home and was pulling into the cul-de-sac, she sees her husband being carried out on a stretcher to an ambulance and is advised by the paramedics that he has passed away. Okay, this sounds like a really bad reality TV show. You've got a seven-year-old running around a neighborhood screaming for help. You've got a tragic pattern happening here, and we've got a lot of physician co-defendants, and I suspect a lot of exposure. You've got everybody blaming and pointing the finger at each other, including the nurses. Precisely. <laughs> Let me tell you what happens next. We flash forward to a conference room with little Johnny wearing a clip-on tie, his hair neatly combed and slicked back, bravely providing the details of having visited his father in the many days of his hospitalization and of planning his celebratory return home, only to have his daddy pass away before his own eyes. And let me explain. We got a call from the plaintiff's lawyer saying, Johnny wants to get his deposition and we're going to provide you dates. And of course, we would never take the deposition of a seven-year-old boy, but the plaintiff's attorney advised us, Johnny's deposition is going forward, and if you don't want to take it, we will. Johnny wants to give his deposition. This is at his insistence, as he is now the head of the household and wants to do this for his mother. Okay, now we've got this tragic case, and we just turned up the heat on the emotional factor big time. How did you guys not get past the emotional impact of this one? Let me tell you, Lee, I think nearly all six of us lawyers who were at this deposition were in near tears. This is one of the most compelling depositions I've experienced. Thereafter, of course, the emotions ran high and the parties knew the case had to be resolved by each defendant, each lawyer, and each claim specialist, but each were at odds with one another. This case should have been resolved immediately, but now everyone is finger pointing. The providers are blaming each other, 
the lawyers retained experts who were critical of each other, and the claim specialists started arguing that one or the other always pays more. Okay, been there, done that in my old claims days. This is, once again, the perfect storm situation where you've got the co-defendants fighting one another between the physicians, between the attorneys, between the claim staff, and it just carries over to bad attitudes on the next time around. Right. This is the most craziest litigation because this went on for over a year and a half. We could not agree upon anything. We couldn't stop the finger-pointing. And on the eve of trial, having completed 36 expert depositions, the parties finally agreed to participate in mediation. The problem as to why we had not participated in mediation prior to the eve of trial for all these depositions is that no one wanted to admit that settlement was something that had to be taken care of. So everyone was waiting for the other person to go to mediation. Wow, with 36 depots, I can see the costs on this thing were staggering. And then, you know, with the lost earnings claim, I bet this is a policy limits, plural type demand going on here. Even with California's cap on non-economic damages, you still have a large economic support for a 38-year-old wife and a 7-year-old boy. That's right, because obviously that little boy needs to be taken care of at least until the age of majority, and then there's the argument that he would have attended college, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So now we're at this mediation, and we had a full day set aside, of course, but it is approaching 3 p.m., and nothing has been accomplished. So we've got two hours left during this all-day mediation, and finally I'm sitting there with my claims person in our private room, and it dawned on me, obviously we're never going to be able to settle this matter unless the mediator agrees to refrain from telling us the terms of the negotiations of the other parties. And so I approached him and said, you know, we've got to go forward with everyone agreeing, of course, that each party would be paying what he or she felt that the case was truly worth as to each such party based upon the individual exposure. There would be no need for further finger pointing as we would not know what the other was offering. So, of course, all parties had to agree to this proposal, which ultimately is what occurred. And then in the next hour or so, the entire case was resolved as to each party. Pure genius. What a killer way to resolve a conflict on the fly, thinking out of the box. What did everyone end up paying? What the case totally settled for? What's interesting is having no knowledge as to what anybody else is doing and what even the demands were to each of the other parties, we reached a settlement that was perfect for our case. But to this day, I do not know what any other party paid, nor do I even know what the total settlement amount was paid to the plaintiffs. And frankly, I do not want to know. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I can see that being a real difficult thing downstream and dealing with the same parties on other cases again. I think that's, once again, pure genius. Well, I will tell you, I think it would be painful if I found out. I don't know if we overpaid collectively. I don't think the mediator would have allowed that to happen. But nevertheless, it would not behoove me to know. And frankly, I don't think anyone else knows. We see each other from time to time, and, and nobody has really ever brought this even up uh, to one another. What I am sure of is we paid exactly what we should have paid and not a penny more for my client. What an incredible way to settle a problem that's got a lot of infighting and a lot of conflicts amongst all the parties involved. But you still haven't told me what's the cause of the bleed. Ah, I thought you had forgotten. Much to everyone's surprise, according to the autopsy, the immediate cause of death was cardiac tamponade caused by dissecting aortic aneurysm. The aorta was torn immediately above the coronary sinuses and extended down into the bifurcation. 
So what had happened was the dissection had actually caught it at the time that the thoracic surgeon and cardiologist took him to surgery for that window. And when they evacuated all the blood, they were right. There was no further active bleeding. The odd thing is that this dissection caught it off and then it began to resume the dissection on the day of discharge, obviously when the patient started complaining of those new complaints. So none of the experts or dependents had ever seen this before. This was an extremely rare situation. Of course, the argument was we could have saved his life during that strange few days when the dissection had stopped. A dissection with a pause switch, never heard of it before, not with <laughs> I know. the size of his dissection being probably an operative, complicated case anyway. Amazing case, really. Yeah, it was really an unusual case. So let's go over the takeaways from this. So number one, obviously no finger pointing. I mean, we all know this is a general rule that it's just going to make the plaintiff's case easier. And look what it did in this case. Try to just defend your own case and not look to blaming the others. The other element that I identify is once you have a reason to resolve the case, you should do so earlier rather than later once you recognize there's exposure. Exactly. When we walked into that deposition with little Johnny, the case needed to be resolved. We knew we couldn't go to trial. And then, again, the last takeaway from this is the mediation, the way you can come up with a way to resolve a very difficult case when you have multiple defendants. Maybe the best way is to try to just stick to your evaluation as to your exposure and not know what the others are doing as far as their contribution. Genius way to resolve, great formula to deal with conflict type cases, and that's what happened when they all walked into the courtroom. Thanks for listening. Please visit ashram.org for more information and educational offerings.